0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to New Consciousness Review Radio, where we meet some of the amazing people whose books and films are inspiring a new story for humanity. I'm your host, Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Dr. Hank Wesselman, a paleoanthropologist who, for much of the past 40 years, has worked with noted anthropologists investigating the mystery of human origins in the Great Rift Valley of Africa. He first became interested in indigenous spiritual traditions while serving in the Peace Corps, where he lived among people of the Yoruba tribe in Nigeria. He has spent much of his life doing field work, and he has encountered many traditional shamans while living with tribal peoples who were rarely, if ever, visited by outsiders. In addition to being a leading-edge scientist, Dr. Wesselman is also a shamanic practitioner and teacher who has authored seven books on shamanism, including the autobiographical Spirit Walker Trilogy, which describes his initiation into the shaman's world of mystery and magic. His books reveal a hidden reality that most of us have heard about, but few have experienced directly. Today, we're going to explore his most recent book, The Bowl of Light, in which he gives us a privileged look into the mind of Hale Makua, an authentic Hawaiian kahuna mystic whose insights into who we are, where we came from, and what we are doing here left me profoundly moved. Hank Wesselman, I am so pleased to welcome you to New Consciousness Review. Well, thanks Miriam.
1: Nice nice to be here, wherever I am. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hank, how did you come to develop a close relationship with this extraordinary Hawaiian kahuna, and what exactly is a kahuna?
1: Well, a kahuna, the word kahuna in Hawaiian implies mastery, and there were many different kinds of kahuna according to their areas of expertise in the traditional past. The way in which we use the word kahuna is usually meant to mean a kahuna mystic, uh, somebody who is a ceremonialist or a priest or a shaman or a healer. And uh, Makua was all of those things. But you could also have kahunas of navigation, you could have kahunas of canoe building, of image making, of weaving, and so forth and so on. But when the word kahuna is used today, it's, it's usually meant to imply somebody who's a philosopher or a, or a mystic, which Makua was. Mm-hmm. Now this man, Hale Makua, This is a guide that my wife and I had heard about for many years, but we'd never met him until 1996 when Jill and I and the children were on the Big Island of Hawaii for Christmas. Now, those of your listeners who have read the Spirit Walker books are aware of what happened to me back in 1985, 86, 87, 88, and 89, because these uh, spontaneous and unsought visionary experiences were profoundly Um, well, they they were very, very unique in the sense that my conscious awareness would be drawn into connection with the mind of another man. And when these connections were established, it was like I was him, and I was looking out through his eyes at a world I'd never seen before, and I discovered immediately that I could tap into his emotions, his thoughts, his memories, and this allowed me to learn a great deal about him. Now, the Spirit Walker story is the compendium of 12 of these visionary experiences that happened roughly in sequence over a five-year period. And I mention this because Makua had read this book. And so in 1996, a year after Spirit Walker was published, I was invited to speak at an institute on the Big Island of Hawaii, which at that time was housed in a Frank Lloyd Wright house, up uh, near Waimea, on the on uh, in the sort of cattle area, the 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 um, the ranching area of of the Big Island. Now, you know, it one of the interesting things to me is that before I wrote a book, nobody really cared what I had to say. But once you write a book, people are suddenly interested in what you have to say. It's one of those <laughs> curious things that just happens.
0: Makes and you so, an expert.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we were invited, and we checked it out with our inner advisors, so to speak. And so on the 28th of December, Jill and I drove up to Waimea. We were welcomed into this magnificent house by our hosts, and about 50 people showed up to hear what I had to say. Now, on that day, I was going to talk about the transformationals. You know, that's you and me and all your listeners and all my readership, all of those, you know... 80 to 100 million people out there in America who are part of a very, very interesting community. So, on that day, I was going to talk about us and our beliefs, our values, and the trends that we hold dear because we hold this belief complex in common and it differs radically from those of the general public. The media, up until recently, has been largely unaware of the size of this community, which means that we've been under their radar. And I don't know, you know, perhaps this is a good thing. <laughs> but at that time, This is 15, 16 years ago. Um, People were still largely unaware of the fact that we belong to a community of this size. And so I was going to talk about this, and I would say about 10 minutes before I was to begin my talk, the door opened and in walked this big Hawaiian man. Now, when I say big, I'm six feet tall, and Makua, as he was generally called, was at least half a head taller than I am and he probably outweighed me by more than 100 pounds. <laughs> he has a great big white beard down his chest, a great big white ponytail down his back, and he had a flashy aloha shirt on, and he had this magnificent carved walking stick, which he was using to, to aid his, his striding across the room to greet us. Well, you know, the place went absolutely dead silent as he was introduced, because many people had heard about Makua, but very few had had the privilege of, of meeting him in person. Now, when I talk about this guy as as Kohuna, he was Kohuna on both sides of his family, both his mother's and father's side, and he had an exceptional genealogy. He was descended from King Kamehameha, a seventh-generation direct descendant on his mother's side, and on his father's side, he was a seventh-generation direct descendant of High Chief Keoua, who was the one who Kamehameha sacrificed to sanctify his temple, his Hayao, from which he launched his conquest of the Hawaiian Islands 200 years ago. So this man had a genealogy which was, you know, exemplary, and he was known all over Polynesia, partially because of his genealogy and partially because of the mana that he carried, the power. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this wasn't just any kahuna who'd come to see me. This was the big kahuna. (laughs) Yeah, I say that because, you know, I was nervous You see, in the Spirit Walker book, I was drawn to explore, I guess you could say, kahuna thought, and so I had revealed some kahuna teachings in that book. And I know and you know that indigenous people are not overly wild about outsiders trespassing into their spiritual traditions. You know, the same goes for the Native American people. So, you know, here I was, and uh, you know, in front of these Hawaiian elder and There were four or five more Hawaiian men who came in after him, all of them with beards and ponytails. Fortunately, they had their wives with them. I knew I wouldn't be turned into a pillar of salt, at least not that day. So, you know, I thought to myself, well, this might be a good time to address a a short prayer to my inner advisors, I guess you could say. And so before I started my talk, I breathed this short prayer, and this did not escape his notice. This was actually following correct protocol, although I didn't know it then. So for the next hour and a half, I, I talked. I sort of free-associated with, uh, with the group and, and uh, talked about the transformationals and who we are and what we believe in and so forth and so on. And at the end of my talk, I got this, this strange feeling like somebody was sort of pulling on my soul that there was something that he wanted to say now that's easier to feel than it is to actually describe what this feeling was like but i was also aware simultaneously that protocol is everything when you're addressing indigenous elders if you don't get it right you're dead so i turned to him and i said elder makua i don't know what the correct protocol is because i'm an outsider but i'm getting this feeling that there's something you'd like to say would it be correct for me to invite you to speak Now. Makua was a man who traveled with many generations of his ancestors in spirit in constant attendance upon him. They were his inner advisors. So I watched him momentarily blank out, and I realized that he was accessing. He was checking in with his spirits to find out what was correct for this occasion. And when he reemerged a few moments later, he looked at me across the room and he stood up, gave a big smile, and said to me, A friend of me. A friend of mine sent me your book, Spirit Walker, and I read it. Silence in the room. You could have heard a pin drop. I mean, this was high noon in Polynesia. This was the moment of truth. He said, I read it again just to make sure I got it right. And then I took your book and I went down to the beach and I put your book down on the sand and I called up in the ancestors and we had a talk about you. Silence. He said, the ancestors asked me what your name is, and I told them that your name is Wesselman, Hank Wesselman, and he smiled. Now, I'm going to say something from a place of sharing, not from a place of ego. He said, the ancestors told me I wasn't pronouncing your name right. They said that your name is really Vesselman, that you are a vessel like the canoe. Mm -hmm. And he's looking at me to see if I'm getting it yet, and I'm slowly going into shock Because part of me had been expecting him to say something like, look, you're really not Hawaiian. You shouldn't be writing about us. And he would have been fully in his rights to do so. Now, I didn't know it, but Mako was clairvoyant, and he was reading everything that was going through my mind as it was passing. So he suddenly laughed and said, don't worry. We Hawaiians don't write. We talk, and we share what we find in our hearts with each other. But in your culture, it's the tradition to write. So I've been told to say to you in front of all these people here, that everything that you wrote in your book Spirit Walker is true, and we Hawaiians need to support you. Keep spreading the word. You're making my job easier.
0: Oh my! Well,
1: the emotion of the moment was really something. I mean, there were many people in the in the gathering who were actually had tears running down their faces because it's so rare that an indigenous elder of Makua's stature would endorse an outsider. You know, this is a man. Makua had sat on stage in the United Nations uh, with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Mm
2: -hmm. This
1: is a guy who'd been sent by the Ford Foundation to the African uh, kingdoms and had had gone to all the native, many of the Native American nations on the mainland to talk to them. Makua was one of the major spokespeople for the Indigenous Peoples Science Network, so he was in the process of becoming a world figure. Now, here in Hawaii, not many people know that. Not many people know that much about him. So the bowl of light is going to come as, an, as a revelation to some, and it's a shock to some others. There will be mm-hmm. those who, who disregard, you know, the teachings and just get instantly pissed off at me for writing about something Hawaiian. But,
0: well, know, I, I, want to, I want to go into that um, more deeply. Hank, uh, I wanted to know the significance of the bowl of light, the, the title of your book.
1: Well, on that first day when I met Makua, he came up to me after my talk and said to me, we should have a meeting before you leave the island. And when the big kahuna says you're going to have a meeting, you're going to have the meeting. Mm -hmm. So on the 31st of December in 1996, he took us to his office at the Volcano, in the Volcano National Park. And we were standing right on the edge of the crater. First, he went to the Women's Place of Power where Jill was able to make medicine the place where women make medicine. Then we went to the men's place of power where he created a bridge using his body and his mind the way shamans do in indigenous societies from the world of things hidden into the world of things seen. And he invited his ancestors to step into our world once again from that that place. And it was extraordinary because I could actually see him transforming in a very subtle way as ancestor after ancestor used that bridge that he had created with his body and his mind to come into our world. I could see him very subtly changing. And it was then that I realized that Makua was not just uh, a wise wisdom keeper. Uh, He was actually a shaman, which is why we use the word shaman in the subtitle of the book, Mm -hmm. Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman. Having established the protocol, he took us to his office where it was a, just a picnic shelter put up by the park service. <laughs> you know, <laughs> A corrugated iron roof, some picnic tables and benches, and he sat down and looked at us and said, the office is now open. How can I be of service to you? You know, this was wonderful. And so on that day, we spent most of the day just simply talking and getting to know each other. At the end of that long day, he gave us a gift the gift of a small carved wooden bowl in the Hawaiian style. And when he gave us the bowl, he he intoned, this is your bowl of light. Your bowl of light is a gift from your higher self that divides itself before it comes into life. Now, the word he used was aumakua, which means utterly trustworthy ancestral spirit in Hawaiian. But he was referring to our higher self, and each one of us has one. Some of us call it the oversoul. In his words, the oversoul divides itself when it decides to re embody, to reincarnate, and it sends in a bowl of its light that takes up residence in a new embodiment for a new lifetime when we take our first breath. When we emerge from our mother's body, we receive what the Hawaiians call our ha. H A. It's the ha of aloha. Alo means face to face, and ha is the divine breath of life, the divinity. So when we receive our ha, that bowl of light takes up residence within us where it supports us and sustains us as we pass through life. But in his words, he said, you know, whenever we step into the negative polarity, whenever we injure somebody with our words or our thoughts or our deeds or Uh, When we achieve success at the expense of somebody else's failure, you know, stuff like that. He said, Mm -hmm. it's like you put a stone in your bowl and some of your light goes Mm out. He said, life is long, and slowly but surely our bowl of light begins to fill up with stones until there's almost no light coming out anymore. He said, hopefully we learn what we're doing before it's too late. And then he said, you know what you do then? And, of course, Jill and I are hanging on every word. He uh-huh. just took the wooden bowl and turned it over. Like, we dumped it out. A big blast of laughter. This was a man who loved to laugh. He loved to laugh. And he said, But once we've cleared the bowl, we begin to le- lead our life differently because it's at that point that we become spiritual warriors. Uh-huh. Now, he used the word warrior of deliberation because he was a career military guy in the U.S. Marines for 20 years he was in five major conflicts. The first one was Beirut and the last one was Vietnam where he was shot up very badly through his legs and feet and ended up spending five years in a VA hospital in Texas. And you know, my wife, Jill, who's a physical therapist, was looking at the scars on his legs and saying, my God, Makua, how did you stand it? Five years in a hospital. And he looked very thoughtful and he said, well, You know, the key factor was my ancestors. They came to visit me every day, sometimes twice. And we got to deal with all my grief, all my anger, all my rage, all the dark places within me. And when I walked out of that hospital five years later on my own legs, I was a free man. I was clean. And it was at that point that he became a spiritual warrior and accepted his kuleana, his Mm -hmm. responsibilities to move up and into Uh, the role that he was supposed to play for the rest of his life.
0: Makua talks about different archetypal life roles that we all follow on our path. Um, Yes, he did. So, do you want to cover these? Uh, One of them
1: is warrior, right? Well, the warrior, okay, the spiritual warrior is a unique person because we have a, a, a very narrow path on which we walk, which is constrained by three sacred directives. Now, the word for directive in Hawaiian is kapu, K-A-P-U, which is derived from the Tahitian word tabu. A kapu is something which is sacred, which is hidden, which is concealed, which is restricted, but it can also be a directive, a holy directive. And he said, there are three directives by which we have to lead our lives from that time on. And he said, number one, we must love all that we see with humility. And of course i'm thinking to myself oh my god easy one first huh and i'd forgotten his clairvoyance he was reading my mind so he laughed and he said i worked on that one for seven years (laughs) love all that you see with humility the second live all that you feel with reverence reverence in this case reverence refers to an active respect an almost ritual understanding of respect You see, for indigenous people, the foundation stone for indigenous mind is respect. So I asked him what the foundation stone for Western mind is, and he looked very thoughtful, and he said, well, you know, Western mind is the same thing as colonial mind, and the foundation stone for Western mind is dominion. Mm -hmm. Domination. This is the dominator complex, a very different approach to life. Mm -hmm. So live all that you feel with reverence. It was what Joseph Campbell meant when he said, find your bliss and follow it, and you can't go wrong. And finally, the last couple, we have to know all that we possess with discipline. And that includes what possesses us. Know what we possess with discipline. This is where we find our self-discipline. And self-discipline is absolutely essential when you're walking on the spiritual path. Without it, we simply can't progress. So this was the beginning of an extraordinary friendship that deepened and deepened and deepened over the last eight years of Makua's life until he passed in a car accident in
2: 2004.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, the life you've asked about, this is a very interesting area. There was a concept, there's an understanding in Hawaiian which he struggled to bring forth into English. And I mention that because we were only receiving a tenth of what he actually knew because he couldn't talk to us in Hawaiian. In Hawaiian, we would have understood a great deal more than he was actually saying. And then there were things that he couldn't talk about because they were restricted by kapu. couple.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the roles, you know, it was, it was very interesting to hear this because he said that when you boil it all down, there are seven major life roles that all of us seem to be living our lives through and within, and one tends to be dominant in us at any one time. Uh, For example, we've mentioned warriors. Well, for the warrior, the positive polarity is persuasion. Now, warriors are soldiers, they're athletes, they're uh, corporate businessmen and businesswomen, they're politicians, um, attorneys and so forth and so on. These All these m- people are in the warrior role. And when you're operating in the positive polarity, you usually get a pretty good result. And for the warrior, the positive polarity is persuasion. The negative polarity of the warrior is coercion. Mm-hmm. You know, and when the politicians fail, I mean, look at the Middle East. It's a perfect example of the fact that the politicians have utterly failed. And so there's all this anger and hostility and resentment, and we've brought in the military. And it's not that the military is bad, but you very rarely get a good result when you're operating in the negative polarity and coercion. But the purpose of the negative polarity, this is where we learn our lessons, uh-huh. life lessons. And once we've learned the lesson, we can step back into the positive polarity where the true solutions to problems are, are found. Right Now, the majority of people around us on a daily basis are servers, not servants, but servers. And for the po- positive polarity of the server is to be of service. These are Makua's thoughts on this. Uh, the negative polarity of the server is bondage, is slavery. And you think about all those good people out there in banks and in supermarkets and restaurants and driving taxi cabs and working in airlines all these people are of service to us. How many of them are trapped in jobs that they hate because they can't give up their benefits because they have loans that they will never pay off? We have a new kind of slavery today. It's a kind of economic slavery. That's the negative polarity of the server. Mm-hmm. Another life role would be the artisan, the artist, the creator. And for the, posit- the positive polarity for the artist is creation. The negative polarity is deception. Such as when an artist who has no real talent themselves becomes wealthy and famous and powerful by imitating others who do have it, but they themselves don't. You know, this would be Mm -hmm. artifice, what Mako called artifice. Mm -hmm. Now, those are three of the roles, the server, the artist, and the warrior. Uh, My major life role, as you know, having had a look at this book, The Bowl of Light, my major life role is the scholar. All of my life, I've been a scholar. I've always had my nose in a pile of books. Yeah, I, if you look at my study, there's just books and papers everywhere. It's just chaos with dust and everything else. Perfect, perfect scholar. <laughs> yeah, the positive polarity of the scholar is knowledge, and knowledge can only be achieved by direct experience, direct experiential knowing. The negative polarity for the for the scholar is theory. Now, this is a very interesting concept. And, you know, when Makua first brought this up with me, I had a few mixed feelings about that because Mm -hmm. science, as I do, you know, theories generate research, and research generates results. So theories do have a positive value to them. And I said this to Makua. He said, of course they do. The job of the negative polarity is to bring you into the positive polarity. It's to bring you toward it. Mm-hmm. For example, if you and I were talking about love, uh, what would the negative polarity of love be?
0: The negative polarity of love is not hate; it is fear.
1: It's not hate. It's not fear. The negative polarity of love is attraction. Oh, and you have to think about that one for a while. Now, if you you know, I haven't looked at a, at a Playboy magazine. in, I don't know, decades perhaps. But um, is Playboy magazine about aloha? No, it's about attraction. You know, you meet somebody um, uh, in your life, somebody who passes through for whom you feel attraction, and the attraction is what draws you together, and the result is aloha. That's why the positive and the negative polarity, everything has a positive and a negative spin on it. And it's not like good and bad. It's more like uh, an electricity so for the for the scholar the negative polarity is theory and hopefully those theories bring us into the positive polarity of knowledge but not always not always some people stay stuck in theory their whole life now the fifth role that he talked about was the sage the sage the wise teacher and the wise teacher the positive polarity for the teacher is expression Having been a teacher for all of my life, virtually, I started teaching in 1964 in Watts in Los Angeles, believe it or not, when I was in Peace Corps training years ago. So I was in it for, I don't know, 40, 50 years, you know, this is my 70th year, and it It seems like I've been a teacher forever, (laughs) but for the negative polarity of, of of the sage is oration, as in just talking and talking and talking and talking to hear yourself talk. It's kind of like the filibuster in politics. That would be oration. That would be the politicians mm-hmm. working in the negative polarity. And many politicians are sages, including many of our, our, our entertainment people, our actors and actresses and television personalities. You know, people like David Letterman, for example, he's an archetypal sage, and so is David mm-hmm. Len- uh, John, Jay Leno. So the sage is an area of great responsibility because it's the sage's role to inspire people to become better than they were. This is why Gandalf was both a wizard and a sage. You know, if you look at the Lord of the Rings, the entire strategy from beginning to end was Gandalf's. But Sam and Frodo get all the credit. You know, Mm -hmm. he was operating behind the scenes. Encouraging hobbits and humans alike to become more than they were, to become greater than they were—that mm-hmm. was his role, and it was very well done in that book. I thought the the role of the of the sage.
0: Hank, um, it, it was fascinating to hear about the different archetypes, but time is passing, and I absolutely want you to go into Makua's fascinating perception of the soul where he explains that we all have three separate souls. You you touched on it, but I want you to describe it a little more fully.
1: Well, you know, Markur was was very gentle in his observation that we Western people hold a monotheist perspective. We believe that we have one God, that we have one life, and that we only have one soul. And he said, in actuality, the indigenous people understand that there are many gods, there are many different transpersonal forces with which we can come into relationship, that we have many lives across the continuum of eternity, and that we have many levels of soul. To be precise, he said, we have three different souls. Now, although you could think of these as being aspects of the self, which they are, he called them souls because they all come from the same source, but they they exist in very different states of quality according to their function. Now, the first one we could mention, we've already mentioned, we've mentioned the bowl of light, that that Mm -hmm. gift of of light that comes into us from our higher self. Our higher self is our spiritual soul that does not die. It's immortal, and it lives forever in the spirit world, in the dreaming. And it divides itself, sending in aspects of itself again and again and again, because there's a co-creative relationship between heaven and earth, between our heavenly self and our earthly self. You see, the spirit world is not a level of action. It's primarily a level of information and energy. The level of action is the physical world where it's all worked out. So in comes this seed of light taking up residence in a body where it discovers a singular and separate soul, which is already in residence. This is the body soul. We could call it the physical soul. And in psychology, it's often referred to as the subconscious Aspect of the self.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Deepak sometimes calls it the emotional body because the body soul is the source of all of our emotions and feelings. It's also the access, the part of our self that accesses our memory banks. The memory banks are encoded in our energetic matrix. And that energetic matrix is derived from three sources from our mother, from our father, and from our higher self. There are actually three ancestral lineages there. Mm -hmm. So the body-soul has very specific functions. It also repairs and restores the physical body. It's that inner healer that all authentic healers know about. It's the aspect that runs the physical body. All those um, functions that we think of as physiology are sort of, I guess you could call them evolutionary software, which are programmed into the body-soul before we come into existence here. It's also the aspect of self that perceives. It perceives the outer world in which we act as well as the inner world in which we think, feel, and dream. It receives dreams. And but this is a very interesting thing, and there's a chapter in the Bowl of Light about the dreamer. It appears that it's the higher self who actually dreams and who dreams all the time. It lives in the level of the dream. And so it's dreaming 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is a, a perception I found in, repeatedly in all of the indigenous people I, I lived with across the years in Africa. Mm-hmm. They all said that we're actually living in the dream and all the time. And everything that exists in our world here was dreamed into existence from, and sourced literally from the spirit world into this one rather than vice versa. So this body-soul is sourced to us from our mother and father in the same way that the gametes, the sex cells, the sperms, and the eggs have a, have a genetic template from the mother and from the father that comes together to create a new pattern. There's also a psychic-energetic template from the mother and the father, which includes all ancestral imprints from both of those family lineages. The body-soul is kind of like your inner hard drive in that it does what it's told like a good personal computer you know it requires direction it requires decision-making and those functions are actually sourced by another soul aspect that occurs within us as we grow in experience and live our lives this would be the mental soul the intellectual aspect of the self which Freud called the ego and Jung called the conscious mind The mental soul is the aspect of ourself that thinks, analyzes, integrates, makes decisions, assigns meaning to. It's our inner director, our inner chief. It's the source of our creative imagination, which means it's the source of our creativity. It's also the source of our intentionality and our volition and our will forces. So it's an extraordinarily important aspect of this This personal soul cluster, the spirit soul, the mental soul, and the body soul. Mm -hmm. You know, in the Western world, this came in first through the writings of Pythagoras in the Greek tradition, believe it or not, who understood that we have three principal aspects. He called them the three principias, the the physical, the mental, and the spiritual, body, Mm -hmm. mind, and spirit. Mm -hmm. This was actually a perception that came through Pythagoras, and for those who've read uh, Peter Kingsley's book, A Story of Waiting to Pierce You, it's about Pythagoras and the fact that Pythagoras was actually a shaman. <laughs> he actually came up with a foundation for Western uh, philosophy. And Plato didn't fully understand it. Plato didn't really get it right. It's a very interesting story, but it's another story quite aside from the one we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. Form a unity in life. And it's through these three souls that we proceed through life, with the higher self being the source of our intuition and our inspiration, the physical source being the source of our emotions and feelings, and the mental source being mental soul sourcing us, our our ability to think and analyze and integrate and assign meaning to and so forth and so on.
0: I loved what Makua said about magic, that it's simply a disciplined and directed focus of consciousness sourced from our mental soul that uses our mana or, or our personal power.
1: Would you? a very important point.
0: Yeah. You know, he,
1: Makua essentially said that we're not here to drop the, the ego or get rid of the ego the way so many transformational speakers, you know, they, they indicate this when they talk on stage at conferences and so forth and so on. And I always wince when I hear them say that because if they'd experienced authentic initiation, they would never say that. We're actually here. We're actually embodied to develop the ego because at the end of life, we... We carry those abilities with us into the afterlife, those abilities that we developed in life, like the ability to create, the ability to make decisions. We carry them with us, and eventually we ascend and are re-archived with our original source, our higher self. And it's in this way that the higher self grows, increases, and becomes more as it travels across time. Mm-hmm. it 's in this way that it becomes godlike in its ability to be a creator.
0: What about reincarnation when we talk about our past lives? are we talking about the accumulated information from our genetic lineage or the soul energy pattern that uh, is us popping into the past or future, and which soul are we referring to?
1: Well, you know this is an interesting point and. You and I both know that in Judeo-Christian traditions, you know, reincarnation is singularly absent. Although, if you look at the foundation, it's there. It's just been largely ignored. For example, all three of our monotheist traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they all agree that God breathes life into form. They all agree on that but the god who breathes life into you is not some off-planet father god who works in mysterious ways and sends occasional messengers to earth who usually get treated very badly that god-like being is actually our higher self that's the one who listens to our prayers feels concerned for us when we fail and silently applauds when we succeed because that bowl of light that lives within us within our heart to be precise that bowl of light is like an open microphone Uh, which reveals (laughs) that we're being monitored 24-7 by the unseen world of the ancestral spirits. And this is a little unsettling for people unless they get used to the idea that privacy is truly an illusion. There is no such thing as privacy. Every thought that we think, every emotion we feel, every action we take, every relationship we engage in, it's all being monitored by our higher self. So this this perception, this mystical perception, requires, I think, a kind of an upgrade as to how we perceive the God complex. Because this fatherly monogod who we inherited through the Judeo-Christian tradition is actually sourced by a Canaanite thunder god who was named Yahweh. Okay, all of us know mm-hmm. that. But what they don't know is that Yahweh was a thunder god who hated trees, and he commanded his followers to cut down the sacred groves of the pagans, of course, to cut down the trees, the sacred trees. And this is very interesting to me because, you know, all three of our monotheistic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they all demonize nature, and they all demonize women as well. Anyway, to go back to our original thought, uh, Makua understood that we have countless lives as we pass across eternity, growing, increasing, and becoming more than we were. And this incoming cycle of, of this bowl of light coming into existence, into form, and then living within us throughout our life, and then returning to its source in the afterlife, going back to the oversoul in an enhanced way. You know, the oversoul mm-hmm. then receives everything that we have done and become in life to grow itself. Mm-hmm. When I was in Egypt, I occasionally take travel groups to Egypt I encountered an absolutely wonderful metaphor for this. Uh, It's a solar metaphor that involves the sun. You could think of the sun setting as the descent of our life into the darkness of form. And then throughout the long night through which we live on earth, that light lives within us, concealed by the darkness of our form, until we eventually pass at the end of life, whereupon our light is released once again, to rise into the into the sky, into the heavens, to rejoin its its connection with that godlike being who resides there, it's it's beautiful when you think of it.
0: It, it is beautiful.
1: Makua'sly beings made of light.
0: You know? absolutely. Makua, uh, you you mentioned the power of women. Makua spoke about the power of women, and he said it's time for all women to come together to generate a new vision. Tell us what he meant by that.
1: Well, you know. Uh, Our workshop groups in Hawaii, over the eight years we were in a relationship with Makua, he would always come as sort of the visiting uh, elder, and he would free associate, usually for an entire afternoon, sharing his wisdom from his great heart uh, with anybody who would listen. And so the Bowl of Light is really a compendium of the talks that he gave to the public uh, across that range of time. These gatherings were, I would say, 75 to 80% women. I mean, you women are really leading the charge here in the transformational community. The men are playing catch-up. And it was his understanding that the time has really come uh, in the cycling of everything for the men to sit down and listen and for the women to stand up and speak. It's time for the men to listen to the women. And so, in his perspective, the great lesson that the women have to teach the men is how to be gentle. Mm-hmm. And he would, he would say this, and, and the men would sort of blink uncertainly, and the women's would just, their eyes would just be snapping with fire because they understood exactly what he was talking about. He was a very exceptional man, and at the same time, he was a chief. He was a man. Uh, he mm-hmm. wasn't a woman. So I remember mm-hmm. one time Joe asking him in his next incarnation if he would come back and be on their team the next time. So he'd come <laughs> back as a woman. And I remember him looking very thoughtful and not really responding because Mako was such a man's man. I mean, he was really a warrior. And he loved his life in the military. He loved being a man. You know, it, it was it was quite obvious. But he was also very, very respectful to women and very gentle with everyone who crossed his trail.
0: hmm <laughs> How did Makua understand the the workings in the world today of an ancient ancestral grand plan?
1: This is a very interesting perception, and we had a we have a chapter in the Bowl of Light called the Ancestral Grand Plan. Makua um, presented this this idea to us over many years, and. You know, he would say that the plan represents a united effort by the planet, uh, the collective planetary spiritual hierarchy. Now, in saying that, what he was talking about is the fact that there are higher organizing intelligences who are associated with us and who are associated with this world. Some people call them the angelic forces, uh, especially those who are inclined to humanize them uh, into... Um, you know, uh, winged superhumans with wings called angels. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't perceive them that way. I perceive them as lights, and I perceive them as a composite, as a matrix, really. But it's definitely a plurality rather than a singularity. And so Mm -hmm. this united effort by the collective planetary spiritual hierarchy, it, it was originally initiated by and is now supported by the ancestors, And it is designed to expand the consciousness of our children, our society, as well as humanity as a whole. Mm -hmm. In his mind, this plan had two initial goals. The first is the expansion of each individual's horizons of thought, as well as the increasing and strengthening of our spirituality, our self-assurance, and our knowledge at all levels. He saw this as being necessary in order to clear up serious, uh, serious areas of doubt, Um, Doubts are formidable adversaries to all of us because they keep us in confusion and create separation. I mean, this is the way our political hierarchies have ruled for so long. They keep their voting constituents confused. And by doing so, you know, they they create separation. It's, you know, the old Machiavellian... uh, Mm -hmm.
0: Divide uh, and conquer.
1: ...strategy, divide and conquer. That's it, exactly. And Mm -hmm. he he would usually look very thoughtful, and then he'd burst into laughter and he'd say... If you doubt you're out <laughs> Everybody always like that uh-huh. the second goal of the plan according to makua is to more closely link all of our spiritual elders with each other with our family members with our communities and with the workers in the world it's about creating connection rather than separation
2: mm-hmm.
1: in his in his mind the time of separation is over it's time to create connection and to this end he felt that all of our elders, both indigenous and Western, must bring their personal groups of family members, students, spiritual aspirants, and colleagues into connection with each other. Mm -hmm. This needs to be done objectively, subjectively, intuitively. And he felt that eventually it would take place telepathically.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: He -hmm. also uh, proclaimed that once we step up to become members of the spiritual hierarchy, you know, once we get bumped up, so to speak, our responsibilities include discovering what it is that we're meant to bridge into this world. And that's in addition to the gifts that we're here to offer, in addition to all of our life roles and our own personal growth as an embodied soul, in addition to our lessons that we're here to work on. He felt that it was about each of us clarifying and refining the vision, for he felt that the vision perceives all of us, it, permeates all of us. And as it evolves and changes, we evolve and change ourselves. Mm -hmm. He said that nothing is set in stone, not scriptures, not sutras, not ceremony, although the fundamentalists who have hijacked our mainstream religions would disagree with this vehemently. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: He also said something which I think people in, in the indigenous world often react to with negativity. He said that no one group or culture has a corner on the spiritual market of truth. Mm-hmm. He said the vision lies ahead of each one of us once we decide to step up to the plate and join the spiritual hierarchy. And this can only be done in the positive polarity, through love. Uh, it, uh, it cannot right. be done through anger. It cannot be done through fear. It cannot be done, you know, through empathy, uh-huh. through zeal, for example.
0: Um, Hank, you were talking about the, the positive and negative polarity, and I wanted you to tell us about Makua's views on the influence of the deceivers uh, and, and this uh, as it relates to the positive and negative polarities.
1: Well, you know, I thought long and hard before I included that in this book, because in order to talk about the deceivers, we have to go into the negative polarity. I mm-hmm. might that Makur was very reluctant to do this. He never went into the negative polarity, and he only talked about them once in all of the time I knew him. And it was a time when the two of us were alone together with no one else, you know, listening in, so to speak. Makur was aware of the existence of what could be called uh, the masters of deception. People in different cultures perceive them in different ways. Uh, For example, the Gnostics were very much aware of them and called them the Archons, and they're described in some detail in the Nag Hammadi Library uh, from Egypt, as well as in John Lamb Lash's book, Not in His Image, which is about Gnostic vision, sacred ecology, and the future of belief. Um, The Archons, or what we could call the deceivers, are not true spirits, They actually exist in the mental, emotional, psychic realms, which are not the same as the spirit world. Uh, It's a separate level of reality entirely, which operates by different rules. But it's the the level in which we think, in which we feel, in which we experience psychic awareness. It's also the level of energy. So it's the level in which a lot of energy workers uh, do their main work. Now, the deceivers, from Makua's perspective, actually exist within the human mind are they could be thought of as mind parasites and from his perception what they do is they encourage us to go into the negative polarity you know they encourage us in our rather natural human ability to make bad decisions and then act on them but <laughs> mm-hmm. so what happens is if we continue to go into the negative polarity over and over and over again uh, we eventually reach a threshold and that's when we have a major decision to make because if we step across that threshold we create the realm of evil. See evil didn't come into existence because of a war between the angels in heaven. It actually occurred right here on earth and humanity's great sin was that recreated evil. But the deceivers had a had a piece of the action. You know, they encouraged us to do this. And we with our deep focus on negativity in our time are are really prone to being uh worked on by them Mm
0: -hmm. but we have a choice
1: we do that's why the the development of the mental soul is so important Mm -hmm. It's about choice about Mm -hmm. whether to do this or not to do this whether to say that or not to say this this sort of thing so these deceivers are, you know, they're constantly with us, and we all have to deal with them. We're all subject to them. And, you know, throughout our life, they appear at various times. Mm-hmm. Of course, we finally realize who they are and what they're all about, the game is over, because then we can decide differently. And they go off to play with somebody else.
0: <laughs> you, very- indicated, you indicated that Makua had decided that it was time for this previously secret information to be brought out into the public. Why do you think he felt this urgency now? Is it just because he felt that you were the right vessel to do it?
1: Well, when he came into relationship with Jill and I, he saw us as being part of the ancestral plan. We didn't know anything about this at the beginning, but he saw that we had been brought into relationship for a reason, And he saw this book, The Bowl of Light, as part of that plan to bring this knowledge to the wider world. And he encouraged me to do that. On the last night of his life, he sat with me in council and said, you know, I know you're going to write about me. And he encouraged me to bring this forward. After his passing, which was a tremendous shock to all of us uh, who knew him well, Within a year, I began to have this curious impulse that would appear in my mind from time to time to write something about my relationship with this unusual man. And it was almost as though he would appear in my mind, and we would begin to continue the talks that we had, we had started in life. It was, it was kind of like channeling, if I could, if I could use that term. Um, I seem to have this ongoing connection with Makua's spirit, and he appears in my life. On a fairly regular basis, both in my uh, directed meditations when I'm very much awake, as well as in my dreaming when I'm asleep. Mm-hmm. So, this was part of the plan that Makua saw was being set into motion. Now, to get back to the other part of your question, there was a very interesting vision that the Kohonas had over 400 years ago the Kohonas in the Northern Ocean and the Tohongas in the Southern Ocean. The word is different in New Zealand and in Tahiti. They saw that the white people were coming. They didn't know when the white people were going to come, but when they came, they realized that they would have to close their books of wisdom because these people were not ready to receive this knowledge about who we are and where we are and what we're all doing here and so forth and so on. So for 200 years, the books of knowledge were closed. But there was a prediction that was made 400 years ago that a certain pattern would appear in the stars. And when that pattern appeared, it would be time to open the Books of Wisdom once again. And that pattern actually appeared in the stars in 1991. And so the Kahunas all took note of this. And it was at that point that Makua began to share openly uh, his knowledge uh, with outsiders, with anyone who was, who was willing to listen. Because he knew that no one culture has, has owns this, you know, intellectual property rights f- to the spiritual wisdom, which is the property of all of humankind.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so, because of this pattern in the stars, he realized that he could speak freely about things that formerly he wouldn't have spoken of in public at all.
0: Oh, I see. I see. Well. You know, I I could talk with you all day, and I'm sure our listeners could hang on every word. But I'm going to close with one last question, um, which, you know, with all of the earth changes, I think, has been on everybody's mind. And I wanted to know what Makua's thoughts were on the end time prophecies and the next cycle of the ages.
1: Well, he was very much aware of the fact that we've come to the end of a 26,000-year cycle. I mean, this is indigenous wisdom that many people held. And he said that in coming to the end of the cycle, everything usually unravels. And if you look at, I cast an informed glance over what's been happening for the last eight years or so, ten years or so, it certainly has been. Mm -hmm. So he realized that what was really important was not so much the year 2012, but the year 2013. Because that's the beginning of the next cycle. It isn't going to be the end of the world. It's going to be the end of the old paradigm, the old way of doing things, the old mm-hmm. world of thinking, way of thinking mm-hmm. about things. He felt that it was time to move from the head to the heart. It was time for us to pull up anchor, which is deeply embedded in the negative polarity, and resync it in the positive. And so his ancestral grand plan, and there's more of it in the bowl of light, as your readership and uh, my readership will discover. Um, he realized that the ancestral grand plan is actually the sketch of the foundation for the next cycle of ages, something that we can build upon. Mm -hmm. This is very Mm -hmm. important.
0: Absolutely. Hank, um, aside from reading the book, which I absolutely recommend to everyone, um, how can people find out more about what you're doing, your classes, your trips?
1: Well, my website is SharedWisdom.com. S H A R E D W I S D O N. SharedWisdom.com. And uh, my wife and I regularly travel around the country offering workshops. For example, we offer three workshops a year up at Brighton Bush Hot Springs in Oregon, which is one of my favorite places to go. I love to dream among the great trees there. And at the um, uh, Esalen Institute in Big Sur and so forth and so on well
0: we will put all of your uh events on our website and uh we'll direct people to your website again that's sharedwisdom.com. wisdom.com
1: yes. so, Shared wisdom with a d
0: <laughs> i i just want to thank you again for being with us hank it's been a, a delight and way way too short we'll have to have you back
1: thank you very much miriam that was very yes, kind sir. of you to have me on
0: So in closing, I would like to share with our listeners this excerpt from The Bowl of Light. Makua said, As we engage in this ancient human experience, each of us inevitably discovers that our personal consciousness is part of a greater field of consciousness at large through which everything, everywhere is connected. A deep insight currently being illuminated and confirmed by science— This is the direct path of the mystic at its absolute best, one that leads the aspirant into the experience of self-realization and spiritual empowerment. Well, that's it for this week, and I want to thank you for joining us. Next week on NCR Radio, my guest will be the formidable Irvin Laszlo, a systems philosopher, integral theorist, and classical pianist. He was twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize— and he's authored more than 70 books. We'll be talking about his latest book, Thomas Berry, Dreamer of the Earth, a tribute to the father of environmentalism. You can learn more about the book on our website at ncreview.com, and while you're there, you can browse through over a thousand fascinating titles, interviews, and videos. Let me know what you think, and please tell your friends. I'm Miriam Knight. Wishing you goodbye and Godspeed until next time.